Well, thank you, choir. I'm curious this morning, how many of you would say that you are good at science? You enjoyed science. Say when you were back in school, you would have counted science as one of your favorite, your favorite of all subjects. How many of you would raise your hand? Let me, let me see, all right? I'm not at that number. I'll put my hand down real quickly. Uh, how many of you would, would, uh, would say that uh, you know anything about science at all? Let me see your hands. Okay, some of you don't have a clue about anything about science, apparently, okay? Well, you, you know, there's no better time than um, Easter Sunday <laughs> than to just, just talk a little bit about science. Did you know, this is going to be intriguing to you, it's going to be the high point of your whole day, I can tell. Did you know that there are six basic machines in all of existence? And that one of those basic machines is called a lever. Did you know that? Are you not just amazed and overwhelmed by that? I can see it on your faces already. You've got chill bumps on your arms, right? So six basic machines in existence. One of those is something called a lever. And you know that because you use levers every day. In the, in the picture behind me, I mean, you see kind of a lever at work to some degree. I mean, this poor guy has a big you know, boulder, I guess, in his garden or somewhere. And he has crafted a, le- you know, a lever, just a basic tool, basic machine, to be able to move the, the rock out of his garden. And you, you deal with levers every single day. In fact, if you remember, if you go back to when you were a kid and you played on the playground, if you ever played on the seesaw, that's a lever. That was a lever at work. How many of you, um, whenever you'd be at the bottom of the seesaw, would jump off so that the guy on the other, you know, okay, that you were a sinful person using a lever, you know, a d- mischievous, <laughs> deceitful person person doing that, but it is actually fun if you remember back doing that. Uh, it is kind of enjoyable to some degree, but you use levers. If you've, ever, uh, if you've ever renovated your house, right, and say you're renovating a deck and you need to get a board up, maybe it's a board that's rotted, then you, you get a claw hammer and you've got a nail popped up and you get that claw and you get it around the nail and you start to, you know, wrench back on it. That is a lever at work. If, you, if you've renovated a bathroom, for example, and you, or a kitchen and you've got uh, uh, tile, you know, ceramic tile on the floor and you get a crowbar or some tool and you wedge it underneath that and you get under that tile and, you know, you step on it or you hit it, it pops that tile up. That is a lever at work. You're, you're accustomed to what levers are. You, you're accustomed to how they, how they work. Let me give you a, a more specific definition. This is going to be something you'll never forget. I can, I, can, I can tell. This is the definition of what a lever does. It amplifies input force to ultimately provide greater output force. Is that not good? I don't see anybody writing that down. Um, it, it amplifies input vor- force in order to provide greater output force. So I can give you all of this, but really, honestly, it's going to be better if I just sort of picture a little bit of what a lever does. So let me, uh, let me move this out of the way. It's, uh, Alex. Alex was in here earlier. Where's Alex? Right up front. Why don't you come on in here, Alex, if you will. Let's give Alex a hand. Alex coming up. Exhibit A, and I asked him in advance, so you don't have to be nervous. I'm going to like pull some random. Bob, back there on the fourth row, come on up. Uh, so Alex is going to be Exhibit A. Now, Alex, I'm going to, I'm going to say, is around 6'2". I never worked at the circus, you know, guessing weights and I, but I'm going to say 6'2 at about 270. Is that right? Yeah, yeah okay, 270. <laughs> okay, and he agrees with me. He's such a compliant little guy. Okay, so Alex, 6'2", probably 230-ish or so. Alex uh, is in our student ministry. Alex plays football on Friday nights, and he plays football on Friday nights very well. Has a good chance playing football on Saturday afternoons here sometime in the next couple of years. And uh, so, so Alex is exhibit A. Okay, Sarah McNair. All right, Sarah's going to come up. Let's give Sarah a hand. Sarah's going to come up. 
All right, Sarah plays keyboards over here. Sarah also in our student ministry as well. Sarah does not play football on Friday nights <laughs> and uh, uh, will not play on Saturday afternoons anytime soon. Sarah is not 6'2 and 230, 40, 50, 60, or 270. Uh, she's nowhere in that vicinity. And so uh, these are our two little demonstrations of how lever works. All right, so Alex, here's what I need you to do. I need you to kind of turn around, just face me. All right, put your arms out like this. Okay, and then Sarah, I want you to come up, and then I want you, if you will, to, to just pick him up. <laughs> okay, it's Easter. All right, so just try to try to pick him up. I'm going to count to three, and then you're going to just grab my elbows, and it should, you know, just pick him up. All right, ready? Okay, <clears throat> one, two. You got a little encouragement from the from the choir here. Okay, yeah, I don't think it was very trusting. Like, go, Sarah. Okay, <clears throat> one, two. How many of you think that Sarah is going to be able to pick him up? I'm just curious. Any of you think that she will? All right, there are a few. A few translates into one, all right? He's saying it's Easter, you got to have faith, all right? So here we go. One, two, three. Whoa. Okay. No, no. Okay, that was fake, by the way. He's, he's going to get severely chastised for that later. All right, so turn back around. All right, let's try it again for real this time, Alex, um, at your age. Okay, here we go. Okay. <laughs> all right, <laughs> let's try this again. All right, all right. One, two, three. All right, not an inch of movement. All right, let's try that one more time. All right, tighten up. It's all your fault, Alex. Tighten up. Okay, one, two, three. All right. Okay, I just think this would be fun with some sound effects. Okay, here we go. Ready? <laughs> Last time with sound effects. Choir, feel free. You, you got voices? Use them. All right, one, two, three. All right, that did no good whatsoever. Okay, so there, he didn't budge. I think we can see this. Okay, so Eric, if you will, let's, let's uh, grab the next part of our visual. Y'all hang tight for just a second. All right, so it's obvious to see that Sarah could not lift Alex off the ground. All right, so Eric, our student pastor, let's give him a hand. He hadn't had a hand all weekend. Okay, thank you. All right, so what is this? Okay, a board. No, this is a lever. All right, you haven't listened at all. This is a lever. Okay, so this is going to be our lever. So I'm going to set this right here. Okay, good. Sorry about your toes, Sarah. <laughs> Not a good day for sandals. Okay, let's set this right here. All right, now, now, boom, we have a lever. I told you it's a simple machine, one of six in existence. You might have missed that. All right, so you step back. We don't want bloody noses up here. Mess up the carpet. Okay, Alex, you stand there. All right, Alex going to be on the end. Same immovable object, right? I hate to describe Alex this way. He's significantly bigger than I am. But for the, for the purposes this morning, he is the immovable object, all right? We've already established that. Could not be moved. So same person, same other person. We've just added a lever to the mix. Alex standing on the other end of the lever. All right, Sarah, let's see what we can do here. Nice. Okay, you can let him down. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to let him down hard, kind of like the seesaw thing. That would have been really good. All right, so let's try it again. Let's do some sound effects again. That was really fun the first time. So go ahead, Alex. Here we go. Uh, one, two, three. Okay, good. You can let him down. All right? All right, y'all have a seat. Thank you very much. Let's give him a hand. All right, so that's just, it's just a simple two-by-four, right? You were, you were right. It is nothing fancy. It's not made of solid gold. It's just a two-by-four, untreated wood. Nothing fancy about it. But it forms a, lev- a, a lever. Now, we could have set this board down. As it sits right now, it's still not a lever. There is a component that turns it into a machine. There is a component that enables Sarah to move the immovable. There is a component that makes the whole thing work, and it's this. It's called a fulcrum. 
You may remember that. I learned this, this weekend that this is third grade science here. Right? This is a fulcrum is what this is called. The fulcrum, when it is in its proper place, and when it is in its proper place in relation to the immovable object, it enables a person, because of its presence, to accomplish the unthinkable. It enables them to move the immovable. And the fulcrum is what makes this whole thing work. You have no fulcrum, you have no lever. You have no fulcrum, you don't move the object that's there. Now, you may wonder, why do we use a brick for this? I mean, I would think for Easter Sunday, we'd have something a little fancier than this. Well, let me just show you a verse. I think this is significant. It's interesting to me. It's in Psalm chapter 31. It says, for you are my rock and my fortress. For your namesake, you will lead me and guide me. Here's what I want to establish in the time that I have this morning. I want to establish that, that whenever we come to those places in our lives where we face our immovable objects, and we all have those, that there is a fulcrum there. There is someone in existence who enables us to be able to see those things that are immovable in our lives to be able to be moved, to see those things that are insurmountable in our lives to ultimately see us to be able to overcome those things. And his name is Jesus Christ. And the key to the whole component of whether or not we're able to see victory leveraged out of defeat, the key to all of that is for us to see Jesus for who he is and that we we allow him, that we invite him to find his proper place in relation to the obstacles of our lives. Now, here's what I think I can say about you. Many of you I've never met. Some of you I only know a little, and others I know pretty well. But here's what I can say about every single one of us, that we understand what it's like to face immovable obstacles in our lives. And across the spectrum of those in attendance this morning, just the same as was last Saturday night, or this past Saturday night, just as it was at our 9 o'clock service in a room that was full as well, I think we can all say that every single one of us have some insurmountable obstacle in our lives, and yet the varieties are endless. For some of you, that insurmountable obstacle that is immovable for you this morning is regret. You look back over the course of your life, and you see time after time after time, things that you would have done over if only you had the opportunity. Whenever you throw the sheets off in the morning and your feet hit the floor, there's regret waiting on you. And it doesn't take long for it to remind you of that night that you were away on a business trip that nobody else knows about. It doesn't take long for that regret to remind you of that weekend, of that week when you were a student in college and you wish you could take that week back. It doesn't take long for that regret to find its way as it claws its way into your life again into your reminder, into your memory, to remind you of that, that season of your life that if only you could live it over, you would, but you can't. And it's that immovable object in your life, regret, that you cannot get past. For others, it's not regret. It's, it may be loneliness. It may be that sense that you're surrounded by people and you've got friends all around, 360 degrees around your life, and yet you feel like the most lonely person on the face of the earth. For others, it may be an addiction, that you've done everything you can. You've exhausted every resource. You have uncovered every rock, it seems, looking for the solution to get past this addiction in your life, and yet you cannot find the solution that will allow you to finally move the immovable. For others, it may be a marriage. You've talked to people. You've been to counselors. You've prayed. You've done everything you can, and yet in your marriage, you still have uh, nothing but discord and disharmony and frustration and disillusionment, and you've tried to change the person you're married to, you've tried to change yourself, and nothing seems to work. And it is that immovable object in your life that you cannot get your arms around, that you cannot lift and relocate. It may be guilt, it could be a thousand different things, and yet I think for every one of us, the common denominator this morning, the thing we have in common is that we've all been there. And for some, you are there. You know, this morning, what I want to look at is a message entitled, Leveraging 
defeat into victory. And what I want you to see this morning is in a passage in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, a snapshot out of Jesus' life and a snapshot out of his ministry that's going to paint a picture of what it looks like when Jesus is invited to his rightful place and how he can leverage good out of bad, how he can leverage life out of death, and how he can ultimately take the immovable obstacles of our lives and not always just remove them, but leverage them in a way that nobody else can. Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to be. If you have your Bibles, I hope you'll read along with me. If you don't have your Bibles, we've got it on the overhead, and you can read along with me there. I'm going to move through this passage of Scripture, and then I'm going to try to tie it all together this morning for every single one of us to help us to see how God ultimately can leverage the worst things that we encounter in our lives, ultimately for His glory and ultimately for our good as well. Mark chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 45. Let me give you a little bit of the backstory before we begin reading through this part of Mark chapter 6. This, this point in this gospel, the gospel of Mark, what we find is that Jesus is very possibly at the height of his popularity in his ministry. He has already fed the 5,000. Uh, you don't have to be in church every Sunday to be familiar with the fact that Jesus fed 5,000 at one point in his ministry. 5,000 plus, actually. It was one of the greatest miracles recorded in all the gospels. He, uh, he was given only very little bit of food and yet there are all these people who had nothing. Jesus leveraged little into much. It was, a, again, a miracle that he performed. And he just had done that as we come on to Mark chapter 6, verse 45. So when you feed 5,000 people with virtually nothing, it, it is not easy, it's not hard for us to understand that you probably are going to increase your popularity as a result of doing that. Jesus didn't do this miracle to increase his popularity. He did it to show that he's God. And yet people, humanly speaking, all around him that were part of that miracle, man, they wanted more of him. They wanted more of what he could do for them. They, I mean, they saw him, at, the Jews especially, saw him as their Messiah who was going to finally set them free from oppression. He was their political savior. And so when Jesus fed the 5,000, what happened was there were a lot of people who didn't want to follow him as Lord. They just wanted him politically to set them free. And Jesus knew that. And so what he did was, was that immediately after feeding the 5,000, he began to withdraw, not for the rest of his ministry, but just for that, for that segment of time, he pulled away and he sent his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This is what it says here, beginning in verse 45. It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. When it says he sent them to the other side, he sent them to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, a sea that, that is, was of considerable size. I mean, we're talking 13 miles long, north to south, 8 miles wide, east to west. And we're not talking Lake Mayer here. This was a big body of water. Uh, this was a, a wide expanse of water. And so Jesus took these 12 disciples, he put them in the boat, and he sent them to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He then dispersed the crowd that was there who had seen him feed the 5,000. He then sent them on their way. Look at the next verse, verse 46 and 47. It says, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Now, the gospel, three of the gospel writers record this particular uh, uh, event, uh, three of the four. So this is a significant event we're reading about. Uh, but yet none of them tell us what Jesus prayed when he went up on the mountainside. Uh, on the eastern shore, especially of the Sea of Galilee, the mountains get very steep very quickly and very high. And it was probably that region that Jesus ascended up the mountains there, and he found a place where he began to pray. I believe he probably began to pray for the disciples that were about to face the most difficult time of their lives up to this point. 
So he goes up to uh, up the, the, probably the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, he sends them across by themselves. He begins to pray. He is alone on land. The 12 disciples are in the boat in the middle of the sea. Verse 48 it says, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Now, something else about the Sea of Galilee that's helpful here is that it sits 700 feet below sea level. As the mountains ascend very quickly off of its shores, some of them ascend all up to 1,500 feet above sea level. So you can imagine with that discrepancy, it's very easy still today for winds to sweep over the mountains, down across that basin, and for storms, very, very violent storms, to kick up extremely quickly. And so here are the disciples. It's the middle of the night. The fourth watch of the night is 3 a.m. to 6, 6 a.m. This is the middle of the night. It's dark 30. Uh, they're in the middle of the sea. The storm is raging. It's kicked up out of nowhere. The wind is again Against them. They're straining at the oars, meaning they have done everything they can. This is not their first cruise, all right? They have, they're accustomed to being on the sea. They're accustomed to being in, in boats like this. And they've done everything they can, straining to the absolute end of their energy to try to make it to where they need to be. And they cannot. It is their insurmountable obstacle, okay? And it says it's in that setting that Jesus came to them. <laughs> which is a, it just so, so good to me. He goes, he didn't, he, here's what I would have done. I would have you know, found a place on the other shore with a raincoat on, a big old umbrella, you know, and maybe something to snack on and been like, woohoo, over here, you know, over here, I made it. You can do it. Come on, you can do this. Come on, come on. Yeah, I'm going to pray for you a little harder. No, no, Jesus didn't do that. But rather, he came to them where they were, and that's what he always does. When we're in the midst of our insurmountable obstacles, listen, there may have been a lot of people that have flat let you down in your life, and there may have been a lot of advice that you've trusted in that has gotten you nowhere but backwards. But what we find when we read Scripture, and what I found in the experience of my own life, is that whenever we go through those insurmountable obstacles of our lives, listen, God loves you too much to sit back at a distance and watch you drown. He will always come to you where you are. Now, we may not see Him, and we may not recognize him, and we may not care that he's there, but he will do it, man, I'm telling you, every single time. And so here he comes to them, walking on the sea. You've heard of the miracle that Jesus performed of how he walked on, he walked on water. This is it. <laughs> yeah, th- this is it. This is the occasion. There's more to the story if you read the other gospel writers, but this is, this is it. And it says he intended to pass by them. Verse 49, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out. Now, I have a sneaky suspicion. I mean, these disciples had spent enough time with Jesus to know this wasn't a ghost, right? I mean, ghosts, they don't appear. like They're not in existence. I think these guys knew that. It's amazing what you will think, however, when you're up against your insurmountable obstacle. It's amazing how fear will take over. And these guys, verse 50 says, they saw him. They all saw him. They all saw Jesus. But the response was that they... They misunderstood who it was, and they became terrified. terrified. It says, but immediately he spoke with them, and he said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 51, and then he got into the boat with them. He not only came to them, but he got in the boat with them, and the wind stopped. And the result, obviously, is that they were utterly astonished. Why did the wind stop? Because Jesus is God. (laughs) When you've created the wind and the waves and the earth and everything that we see, you have the authority as God, who Jesus is, 
to command your creation to do whatever you want it to. And in this instance, he chose to command the waves to be still, and they were, and the wind stopped. And these disciples, all 12 of them in the boat, who witnessed this event, the Bible says, were not just astonished, they were utterly astonished. Here's, here's what I learn when I read that passage. I think there are huge implications for us this morning. Here's what I learned. It's a simple principle, and I hope you'll jot this down. That you leverage, ultimately, you leverage your defeat into victory whenever you make the decision to invite Jesus to take over. That what we learn from this passage and what we learn throughout the whole entire New Testament specifically is that we face difficult times. We live in a hard world. You may love God more than anybody else in this building, but just because you love God doesn't put a holy bubble over your life to where hard things don't come. Hard times come to even the most strong of Christians, the most trusting of Christians. And what we learn from this passage is that whenever we face those difficult times, those insurmountable obstacles, whether it's guilt or regret or loneliness or fear or anger or an addiction or whatever the list may be for you, that when we face those insurmountable obstacles that come in our lives, we're able to see those obstacles leveraged into not, not defeat, but leveraged into victory. But it only happens not when we invite Jesus to just sort of stand nearby and, and be there whenever we want to call on him, but when we invite him to get into the boat, into our lives, and to absolutely take over. And here's what the issue is for so many of us in this country in which we live is that we have no issue with who Jesus is. We believe that he's God. We have no issue with the fact that he died, that he rose again. And we have no issue with that. The issue for most of us is that, is that we feel like we can be okay just letting Jesus have a, have a part of our lives and be involved to some degree in our lives, but we're not ready to cross the line and to say, Jesus, we need you because I can't do this on my own. I, I am undone. I am bankrupt. I have nothing to add to this, to this life to to, to give what I need. Jesus, will you not just step over the bow and step into my life and just take over? That's where we have our issues because we don't want a Lord. We want someone to be there to bail us out. We want someone to be there to bless us and to make us comfortable. But we, many of us, we don't want a Lord. And so we fall short of inviting him to step in and to take over every aspect of our lives. And yet, if we don't do that, Here's what we're left with. We're left eyeball to eyeball with an insurmountable obstacle that we'll never get past in our lives. Because only Jesus can redefine guilt. Only Jesus can redefine regret. Only Jesus can redefine loneliness. Only Jesus can set free from addiction. Only Jesus can heal a broken marriage. Only Jesus can put back together and replace a broken life. Only he can do that. But he's probably not going to unless he's invited in to take over. You know, I want to I show you something else about this little lever. A, uh, Alex, are you, you still around? There you go. <clears throat> you know, so, something else. You, you saw this, but you might not have recognized it. I want to ask Alex again just to stand on the other end again. Let's set this fulcrum there. All right, you stand on the other end. You know, I've, I've put the fulcrum there. Still, still the same lever. It's the same components are still there. Same movable obstacle that you met earlier in the service. Um, but the fulcrum is in the middle. It's not really up close to that obstacle. And if I were to put my weight here, and if I were to begin to press down on that, there's a really good chance I'm going to I'm going to break that board. 
He's going nowhere. Because a lever is not designed to work that way. What has to happen is, is that that fulcrum, representative of Jesus, has to be right up against that obstacle. So that when that fulcrum is in its rightful place, right up against the obstacle, right up against the hurt, right up against the pain, right up against the sin, right up against the addiction, right up against the regret, that when that fulcrum is right up against that immovable obstacle, it'll pop up every single time. Thank you, Alex. You know, I think the question for us this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture is how willing are you to invite Jesus to take his rightful place in the middle of your mess, in the middle of your insurmountable obstacle, in the middle of your life? You know, there's something interesting in this passage. We've already read verse 48. I want to take a look at it one more time. It says, Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. That, that intrigues me, that verse. That, that, that part highlighted there intrigues me. It says he intended to pass by them. You know what that means in the Greek? It means he intended to pass by them. <laughs> That's what it means. Yeah, there's nothing hidden there. In other words, Jesus, as he sees them straining at the oars, he decides to come down off the mountain. He begins to come to them. But he's, he's acting like, as he walks on the water, that he's walking right past. And that, that confuses me because I would think, I've read the Bible a few, you know, quite, quite often, Knowing Jesus the way I do, and the way that many of you do, you would think that Jesus would just be getting it to them, right? I mean, you'd think that when he saw, I mean, his boys down there on the middle of the sea, and they're straining, and they've exhausted all their resources, they're still stuck where they are, they've got this insurmountable obstacle called a storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. I mean, you want to thank Jesus. I mean, this is God who loves them, right? You're going to think he's just going to be beating it. He's not just going to be walking across the sea. You're going to think, remember Scooby-Doo, the whole, like, you know, gangway. You'd think that's kind of what he's going to be doing there. I mean, just beating it to where they are, like, right there. But he's not. He comes walking across the sea, and not only that, but the Bible says literally that, that he intended to pass them by. And I look at that and I wonder, what, what is going on there? I mean, why would Jesus act like he's going on further? Another translation says it that way. He acted as though he was going farther. Why would Jesus do this? The Bible doesn't say, here's what I think, that he was waiting for the invitation. He needed, there, there needed to be an invitation into the midst of the mess. Not for Jesus' sake. He could do whatever he wanted. He could have climbed the bow of that boat and shut those winds down and gotten them where they needed to be any old time he wanted. He didn't need the invitation. The disciples needed to make it. And they would not have leveraged that event, the most scary of their life, to that point. They would have never seen it leveraged into an event that they would never forget, for they were utterly astonished. Except by inviting Jesus into the boat to take over not have a seat in the back lord we're working hard we'll get you there but god we got nothing to add would you just take over (laughs) 
You know, the two greatest acts of leverage in all of history, one we celebrate today, Jesus, God himself, lying dead in a tomb, crucified for all to see, pierced through his hands and his feet, a spear thrust into his side, everyone knew he was dead, placed in a tomb, and three days later, that tomb is empty, God leveraging life out of death. The greatest act of leverage I believe history has ever seen. You know the other greatest act of leverage? Is salvation. God taking a person who is, who is owned by sin, like you and me, and saying, you know what? I'll pay for that sin. And not only will I pay for that sin, but I'll replace the death that it brings with life that I can only give. And not only life, but eternal life. <laughs> I'll give it to you if you'll only invite me in to take over. You know, there's a passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Notice what this verse says. He made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that, here's why, we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is leverage. You know, there are some this morning, you need that in your life. You need a Savior. You need a Lord. Not just to call on when you want a blessing. Not just to call on when you want to be made comfortable. Not just to call on because you got yourself in a bind like we always do. And you're going to ask him to bail you out. You need a Savior to forgive you of your sin, to make you right before God. You need a Lord to take over. And there's only one who can do it, and his name is Jesus. And he stands ready this morning to take over everything if you'll just invite him in. There are others of you that have made that decision. You've given your life to Christ. He is your Savior and He is your Lord, but you still stand against an insurmountable obstacle this morning. You've tried everything you can. You've sought advice. You've done everything in your power to move past this insurmountable obstacle, but you cannot get past it. Maybe what you need to do, maybe, is to just put Jesus, that fulcrum, <laughs> the difference maker, to invite him in up against that pain and up against that hurt and up against that brokenness and up against that that holds you and to let him do what he chooses, knowing that through that, he'll be glorified and you'll be better for it. Imagine what life would be like if you could run to the hardware store as you face your insurmountable obstacle and buy a lever to get it out of the way. That'd be some good stuff, wouldn't it? You'd pay good money for that. Imagine if it was available. You know what it is. And his name's Jesus. And all he waits for is the invitation for you to turn and to let go of sin, to let go of your efforts, and invite him in to take it all. Let's pray. God, uh, well, what a great weekend for a message like this, a message of hope and a message of forgiveness, a message that reminds us that that you, Lord Jesus, are God, that you came for us. A message that reminds us that, that you see us as we struggle. You know us when we go through times of difficulty. You know every obstacle that is represented by every life here today. There's not one that catches you by surprise. Lord, you know that self-effort will never get us past that. You know especially in regards to being right with God that we can never do anything, we can't live a good enough life to overcome the sin that we've, that we've uh, committed. And Lord, what we need desperately is a Savior who will pay the price for us, and you have. 
What we need desperately is a Savior who will come to where we are, who will convict us that a life of sin is not the life that, that you desire. And, and what we need is a Savior who will lead us to lay down our sin and to turn from it and who will accept us when we call on you. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're that Savior. God, I pray today that all over this building this morning that there'll be people who don't come here this morning to check a box to keep you on their side for the next week or month or however long. But Lord, I pray that all over this place today there'll be people who don't know you that will see that getting better is not the answer and joining a church is not the answer, but inviting you, Lord Jesus, to forgive and to take over is the answer. They'll do it right where they sit today. Perhaps even in words similar to this, Lord Jesus, I need you. My sin has broken my relationship with God. And today, believing that you're God, Lord Jesus, you've died and risen. Today is an act of my will. I lay down my sin the best that I can. And I give my whole life to you, Jesus. To forgive me. To make me clean. To make me right before God to save me and to keep me forever. In your name, amen. God, I pray.